0: Well, as we celebrate the patron saint this weekend, perhaps it's appropriate to consider that one of the possible consequences of Brexit is the reintegration of the National Territory. Between that and the Scottish National Party leader Nicola Sturgeon's proposal for a second referendum on Scottish independence, it becomes increasingly apparent that the fallout of Brexit extends far beyond simple membership of the European Union. Is it too late to back out and stay in? In studio, Sebastian Hamilton is group editor of Irish Mail newspapers, Karen Devine is a lecturer in international relations in the, and the European Union in DCU. And Kevin O'Rourke is professor of economic history in All Souls College, Oxford. And he's also Sean O'Rourke's cousin, who apparently was once referred to by Donald Trump as that asshole, Sean O'Rourke, which is truly a great badge of honour for any respectable journalist these days. And on the line is former Taoiseach John Bruton too. First, here's Taoiseach Enda talking to Bloomberg in New York yesterday. There are 10,000 issues to be considered here. what Britain wants at the end of the day is as close a relationship to the European Union as is possible. We support that because of all the countries to be affected by a hard Brexit, economic indicators would point out that Ireland and Northern Ireland would be most adversely affected. So we need to protect our peace process, our trading issues, our common travel area, um, and our, uh, our membership of the European Union where we will stay. Um, John Bruton, that's the Taoiseach there, saying there are 10,000 issues to be considered here. One of them which I've noticed is how his language has shifted in recent months from no hard border to seamless border and to United Ireland, actually said in Brussels a couple of weeks ago. And I recalled you once saying that United Ireland might come about via deeper integration within the EU. Is it possible that it will be Brexit which will deliver a nation once again?
1: I don't think so. We are a nation anyway. Um, we don't need to become one. But the reality is, I think that uh, Brexit will deepen the division in the island. Uh, it is significant that although there was a majority in Northern Ireland in favour of remaining in the Union, uh, in, in the European Union, a majority among unionists. The seitaire unionists voted to leave uh, the European Union, so this is an issue that has divided uh, the community in northern Ireland and my view is that the only hope we have of having a, a united Ireland if it is ever to come and it can come peacefully would be when both unionists and nationalists in Northern Ireland agree that that is the best way forward for both of them a uh, United Ireland that was imposed by a Slight majority on an unwilling minority would be the source of deep division and possibly even of violence, uh, which we uh, in the Republic would be among the sufferers. Now,
0: as the practicalities start to be considered, though, you know, the prospect of a hard border seems... You know, so slim, like the sheer impracticality of imposing it. But how would a seamless border work if this is going to be the border between the United Kingdom and the European Union?
1: Well, I think it's uh, principally the British that have been using the term seamless border and no return to the borders of the past. And as far as I can see, this is just rhetoric uh, because they have not put forward any proposals as to how one could comply with the requirements that exist for trade between an EU country and a non-EU country without some form of border. Um, For example, it's not just tariffs that have to be collected. Uh, We would have to collect the European tariffs but also the UK would have to collect whatever tariffs uh, they retain but also more importantly and more expensively the origin of goods would have to be verified. The so-called rule of origin uh, requirements would have to be fulfilled. And this requires an immense amount of paperwork. Anybody exporting goods into the European Union from a third country like the UK would have to verify that those goods only come from the UK or if they contain materials from a third country, that it's no more than 40% of the value of the goods. And that has to be certified in a document. That document has to be approved by the authorities in the home country and then inspected when the goods arrive at the border of the European Union. The cost of this has been estimated as up to 15% of the ultimate price that might be paid by a consumer of those goods, which, of course, will create huge competitiveness, dislocations, as well as enormous administrative costs, queues and lines at the border.
0: Um, Kevin O'Rourke, I think you have expressed some concern about the language that has been used, you know, around Brexit and seamless borders and, you know, all of this. Do you think there's any prospect that as the hard practicalities as outlined by John Bruton there become apparent that there will have to be a rethink?
2: A rethink on the part of whom?
0: Uh, on part of the United Kingdom, that this this is just far beyond what was envisaged at the time of the vote.
2: I would love to think that the UK might rethink things, but as I think Sebastian's probably going to tell us later on, I don't see any prospect of it right now, at least not while the Brexiteers who've been driving policy for the last couple of years um, are still in charge, because th- this is their life work. They want the UK to leave the EU They know that this is going to impose economic costs, potentially. They're not going to say so publicly for electoral reasons. But for them, it's all about... About sovereignty. Now, it may be you know when uh, people realise that they have been told to pack of lies and sold to pack a pack of lies in the last referendum. You know, if if Sunderland uh, loses its, its car plant, for example, one can imagine a couple of uh, symbolic things like that that might change opinion. Maybe there would be a rethink. Yep. But I I think I don't think that we can assume that that's going to happen. I think we have to assume that all of those costs to doing trade across borders that the EU was designed to get rid of, that John Bruton is talking about, are going to re-emerge.
0: So this talk of a seamless border. Do you think that is at all viable?
2: Um, first of all, I think John Bruton's absolutely right. It's only the uh, British who are saying this. And, and one point to make is that they are now explicitly saying what I think was always obvious, which is that they don't envisage a special deal for Ireland. They hope that this seamlessness can be extended to all of the UK's external borders so as to minimise the cost to them. But it's important to think about what can and can't be done. I can imagine that you might get a situation where people who are regularly trading do some of the paperwork online. Maybe computers can recognize... Uh, vehicle license plates and so on. Uh, Derek Davis talked about trusted traders the other day in the House of Commons. But what about all the traders who aren't trusted? What about smugglers, for example? Imagine that the uh, UK does a deal with Australia or New Zealand or America and agreed to uh, import uh, frozen lamb or beef duty free. Well, we don't want that to be dumped on the Irish market because it would devastate Irish agriculture. And if those goods were then to circulate freely around the EU because we hadn't done our job at the border properly, we'd be stuck with huge fines. The British customs authorities last week were stuck with a £2 pound or euro fine because organised gangs of criminals had been smuggling uh, Chinese textiles into Britain and thus it was entering the rest of the EU and other countries were losing tax revenues as a result and the British are going to be stuck with a very big fine. Well we can't afford for that to happen uh, in Ireland and it's not as if organised crime and smuggling aren't things that we Mm. know in the border areas. So um, yes regular traders probably can uh, be facilitated in some way. They're still going to have many extra costs, but the notion that you can get rid of a border completely is fantastical. I think.
0: Now, Sebastian Hamilton, I the last time you were on the program, you were making the point. Look, this was always about sovereignty, you know, which is an ideological and an emotional issue, and cost doesn't come into it. But as these practicalities become apparent, surely cost has to come into it at in
3: some. Sense. Well, it should do, but overall, it's about politics. Uh, and one of the things that people need to understand is that right now in British politics, there is just no coherent movement to to have a rethink. British politics is dominated by the Conservative Party. There is no room whatsoever in the Conservative Party for anybody who is anything other than a committed Brexiteer. The Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn has, beca- has accepted Brexit. Uh, so there's just, you know, there's no movement that politically could express the wishes of people who might want to rethink. And by the time any movement like that gets together, frankly, it'll probably be too late because once they trigger Article 50, the clock is running, there's no provision to say in a year or two or even three or four ah, sorry, we've made a mistake, can we just forget about all that? You know, they'd have to, uh, if you look at the treaties, the, the, the consensus seems to be they'd have to go out and then come back on their hands and knees crawling, begging to be readmitted. The political realities of that, I think, are uh, make it incredibly unlikely. There is still a way that could be done, but right now, for for all that everybody else is saying wouldn't it be great if once the realities become apparent they had a rethink? The actual reality of of, of of that being put into place is non-existent. and This is one of the big problems we've had ever since the Brexit vote is that we seem to be living in the politics of wishful thinking on everybody's part, the, the, the British, but also I have to say for a long period the Irish government talking about how... You know, because it, the seamless borders it is a phrase that's been used here as well, and you know the message that's been communicated a lot initially by the Irish government to the Irish people was, "Oh, we'll be able to, we'll be able to fix this with the Brit. And now the realities are starting to become apparent that it's not going to be that easy, and in particular, there's no, there's no great sense amongst the the rest of the EU. Yes, we will do a special deal for Ireland. You hear them say, we recognise the importance of the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement. But when it comes down to the hard fact of, will you allow Ireland to have a special deal, effectively a bilateral deal with Britain... Absolutely not.
0: On that point about the Conservative Party, Nick Cohen was writing in The Spectator and he referred to a cult of Brexit. And he said in cults, he quoted Stephen Pinker, fantastical beliefs are flaunted as proof of one's piety. And today you have to show that you believe the fantastically optimistic beliefs about Brexit to prove your devotion to the church of the latter-day Tories.
3: How did this happen? Well, I mean, uh, I think that's, the, 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 that's one analysis. You have to remember that for a lot of for a lot of English people in particular, it's not a cult, it's an article of faith, and there is a, there is a difference. If you said to somebody from Sinn Féin, oh, we've got some evidence here that a United Ireland would be economically damaging, uh, which the ESRI, for example, was suggesting earlier in the week, they're not going to turn around and say, oh, well, in that case, we'll drop our belief in a United Ireland. This is... F- 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 for these Conservatives... Independence, as it were, the sovereignty of Britain is as important to them as a united Ireland would be to a Sinn Fein politician. It's as intrinsic to their political DNA. It's what they believe in. And we need to understand that if we're going to address the challenges that we have. And we need to stop, firstly, I think saying, oh, well, they're just a bunch of of stupid racists. And secondly, we need to understand that the economic argument, you know, British sovereignty as they see it, will be damaging economically. That's not going to fly with them. They don't care. They'd right. prefer if it didn't, but if that's the price they have to pay, it's one they'll pay.
0: And I'll come back to John Bruton in, in just a second on the attitude of the EU, but Karen Devine, um, I want to go to you. Um, you know, Kevin was talking about smuggling there and my father recalls as a child, we had relations whose farm was actually on the border near Jonesborough and he remembers walking pigs through the woodland, looking down on the customs post and the pigs actually being quiet like they knew they were being smuggled down <laughs> and they were being good. Like this is all in Living memory, And it might come back very, very easily. What's your forecast of what you think this is going to play
4: out? I think it is concerning, first of all, that Enda Kenny or keeps saying this phrase of we're on the side of the 27, um, whereas he should be on the side of Ireland that there's a 28-member negotiation going to take place and he has to represent the interests of this country. And he needs to get out of this um, European identity that he's holding fast to because I don't see it as a binary of the UK against the rest. And I think it's, a very, um, it's, it's not a good negotiating position from our perspective to go into. I think also we forget that Ireland is an island and that we have checks for goods and people coming in and out of the island, whether it's the six counties or the 26 counties. So from my perspective, I see no reason why the EU cannot grant special status to the island of Ireland in that respect, so that there doesn't need to be a hard border. All we need to do is to make sure that in terms of the 26 counties that we are adhering to the rules that we need to as an EU member and that and from the point of view of the UK and we don't know at this stage and this is really important you know these negotiations haven't even started they're going to take two years there is an option for the European Council by the way to take a vote to allow those negotiations to be prolonged after the two years now I know people are saying that at two years that basically it's game over and the UK's out and that's what happens but but in reality, thats I don't believe that's what is going to happen. Now, there are some complicating wrinkles that I actually want to raise on the programme about that. Good. And it's really about the relationship between the European Commission headed by Jean-Claude Juncker and the UK government and the problems therein. But I think we have to kind of dial down the, a lot of the drama around it i think that there is a possibility and 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 actually a member of the public um sent me um travel identity cards from these are amazing the 1940s yeah. and there is a possibility again of saying at the table now it'll be the 27 sort of negotiating against as such the UK. But there is a possibility for the Taoiseach, whoever that may be at the time, saying to the other 26, look, you know, we've always had a common travel area. We need to preserve this and we need to hammer out a deal for that. And I cannot see why the other 26 would be so um, obstreperous and, and negative towards something like that. They have to respect what political systems and what cultural systems and what human systems of communication and and labour, etc. were there before both of us became members of the EU.
0: John Bruton, isn't that the essential tension here, that there's a feeling that the European Union cannot be kind to the United Kingdom because that might encourage others to leave. And yet, if they're going to be emotional about it, then everybody's just going to be worse off.
1: Well, it's a very practical matter. It's not an emotional matter. If you create a precedent whereby a country gets a better deal from the European Union by leaving it than by staying, then everybody would want to leave it. I don't think from a practical point of view, if if we believe in the European Union, that we could support that approach. Now, to come to Karen's points, first of all, she's talking about the common travel area, whereas I'm talking about Goods exports. I think there won't be a great difficulty in maintaining the common travel area because immigration policy will be a matter for the British themselves and immigration policy vis a vis Britain will be a matter for us. So I don't see how we would have any difficulty with the European Union in preserving the common travel area. The difficulty is with goods exports and, in particular, with agriculture, where the IFA have. estimated up to 30%, 37% income loss for some categories of farmers in Ireland as a result of Brexit because of the complete disruption of our trade with Britain. If Britain, outside the European Union, decides it's going to adopt a cheap food policy. Now, as far as um, the extension of the negotiation from the two-year period is concerned, Karen is correct. That can be done, but it has to be by unanimous agreement.
0: Yeah.
1: And you could easily see that one country that was unsatisfied with some matter, it could be Poland, or it could be an even smaller country, would hold up the extension because it wasn't getting what it wanted. So I think we will have to do everything we can to finalise as much as possible, if not all, of the deal within the two years.
0: Are there countries within the Union who are more hardline and a bit more bitter? You know, if you had to single out particular countries that might be le- less amenable to going easy, wh- wh- which would they be?
1: Well, I think France is particularly resentful of the fact that European Union countries have made repeated concessions to keep the Brit- Britain in the European mm. Union. And in a sense, those concessions have been thrown back in their face, the concession in regard to opting out of the euro, opting out of the social chapter, opting out of justice and home affairs, were all made in order to keep Britain happy and allow Britain to be a sort of, as it is already, a semi detached member of the European Union. But notwithstanding all of that, that dilution of the common European approach, the British are still leaving anyway. That's I think, has left understandable um, discontent in some countries. Now, there is one aspect of the British approach to all of this that I would like to say, and it's a contradiction. Britain wants to be an open trading nation. But they insist that all rules governing trade have to be made by themselves in Westminster. That's contradictory, because... All trade requires rules, and it requires international rules, whether it be EU international or global international rules. And those rules have to be made elsewhere than in Westminster. And I think the, the UK's public opinion, particularly the Conservative Party, hasn't worked out the fact that to have global trade or trade with Europe, you have to have common rules, a common system of enforcing those rules, and a common system of adjudicating on the interpretation of those rules, which is what the European Union provides through the Commission and the Court of Justice. The British have rejected that, but they still want to be in the European Union Mm -hmm. for trading purposes in many respects, and that's a contradiction.
4: I think Karen. there's another side to it, and I understand the Euro Federalist point of view. But, you know, I lecture in European Union politics, but also lecture in international relations. So I understand, like, how states negotiate in the international scene and how they behave internationally. And I think there's a side to it that is simply not spoken about in the media. The side where the EU, for example, in 2011, broke its own rules in the Lisbon Treaty about a no bailout clause. Christine Lagarde said at the time. Yes, we, we broke the rules, and we broke the rules because we really wanted to rescue the eurozone. And asking the UK, which doesn't want to be part of a single currency, and it has very good reasons for not wanting to be part of it, and it's not a panacea. Ireland itself has suffered as a result of being unable to control our interest rates during, for example, the property bubble. But when you look at the fact that the EU has broken its own rules, the no bailout clause, that it went ahead with a fiscal compact that David Cameron vetoed in 2011, what did the EU do? Well, to hell with you. Thank you You know, this notion of uh, having a veto is now set to one side and we're going to go ahead anyway and we're going to go ahead outside the EU legal framework. And not only that, we're going to put in a clause which is very arrogant from my point of view, very arrogant to say, well, in five years time, hopefully this treaty will be reintegrated back into the EU legal system, i.e. we're going to assume the UK is going to buckle under the pressure and going to give up their veto on it and just roll along with what we want to do. Secondly, when you look, in 2014, normally it's the European Council, which is the heads of government, like David Cameron at the time in the UK, Enda Kenny etc. for Ireland get to nominate who the head of the European Commission is and the head of the European Commission is a key role particularly now in Brexit and what happened was, and it's called the Spitzenkandidat it's, it's a German name basically they decided that the results of the European elections in 2014 were going to be used to essentially elect the person, Jean-Claude Juncker, to that position. And David Cameron hadn't agreed to this. The treaty say that you have to take into account the elections, but it doesn't say the results of the elections determine who the position is going to go to. And because Jean-Claude Juncker was... Um, then EPP, which is the European Political Party grouping in the Parliament, they won the most votes, they won the most seats across Europe. So he was their nomination. But at the same time, David Cameron objected to this because he didn't want somebody who was so Euro-federalist as he put it, and he was left isolated. So this is not necessarily a a breaking of the rules of the treaties, but it is a reinterpretation (coughs) of the treaties that was not in Cameron's favour, that was so Mm. pro-European and federalist and that there has to be some kind of balance to the discussion as to why the UK is leaving. And then, I won't go into the detail here, but the third point is, and I personally don't agree with this position because I'm an ordinary person who's also suffered as a result of the imposition of austerity, but the protection of the interests of, of of financial firms in the City of London and then by analogy in Wall Street has also been a huge part of why the UK wants to leave. John, do you want to come back in on that and then
1: I'll let yes, you go? I, I, I think the European Union was right uh, to um, depart from the, clause, the no bail-in clause. I think that Clause was impractical from the beginning when you had the sort, and it was put there before the economic crisis. And we would have had mayhem in the financial markets if we hadn't had the, op-
0: op- the yeah. But John, is the, the point? But,
1: look, but we it- hadn't had the possibility of German taxpayers bailing out Greek taxpayers, which is what happened. So I think the bail-in uh, removal of the no in was reasonable, as far as um, David Cameron and and the the fiscal compact is concerned. The fiscal compact wasn't going to apply to the UK, but he still decided he wanted to, to veto it for an entirely separate purpose. Now that was, to my mind, not behavior that anybody should engage in. It was disloyal to the European Union, and rightly, the European Union found another way of implementing what was the will of the overwhelming majority, affecting only countries in the euro, which did not affect Britain.
2: Kevin O'Rourke. I, uh, you've been reading me for almost 10 years now on the Irish Economy blog, Yes, Sarah. I So have. I think you know that I'm not a stereo-eyed euro-optimist on every dimension. I've often criticised the single currency and I've often criticised the crisis response uh, of the eurozone to what happened after 2008. But none of this is relevant to the Brexit decision because they're not a part of the single currency. And you can't blame Europe for Mr. Osborne's austerity policies. He's a very ideologically driven right-wing Tory who genuinely wanted to shrink the state to make a sort of an offshore Hong Kong of of the UK Um, And and
0: isn't this your essential position, that you're concerned that the European Union will get the blame for the negative consequences of Brexit? But it wasn't the European Union that did this to the people. The British did this to the rest of us.
2: There has been some very interesting voting studies done uh, looking at why various constituencies voted for or against Brexit. What they find is that. Um, there's a slight correlation between uh, the extent to which you voted out and the increase in the number of immigrants from, from Eastern Europe, but the size of that correlation was very weak and actually you could have completely uh, blocked off all Polish immigration, for example, from 2000 and you would just have reduced the margin of victory. You wouldn't have overturned the result. Uh, on, in contrast, there's a very strong correlation between various measures of austerity, uh, housing waiting lists, NHS waiting lists and so on. And that, that that's... Tory domestic policy that's, that's to blame um, and uh, yeah uh, Europe did end up uh, being, being blamed for that
0: Sebastian Hamilton
3: yeah I just think uh, as, as interesting and informative as, as the points that, 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 that John was making were we're still obsessing about effectively why did this happen why did they do this why did the Brits do this to us instead of thinking okay it has happened We need to accept it. We're still in denial. We're still in the anger stage of grieving. We haven't just accepted they are going. It's happening. Miracles might happen, but realistically, it's not turning around. So we need to focus on, and all our energy needs to be focused on, how does Ireland get the best possible deal out of this? And in particular, again... We're very focused on what, what what the Brits are saying about the relationship and what they're saying they want it to be. They don't get to decide. The people that get to ultimately decide this are the heads of government of the other 26 EU countries. And all of our effort, I think, has got to be focused on getting them on side and on building the alliances that will allow us to strike the deals that Ireland needs. Because at the end of the day, you can talk all you like, and Karen, Karen kind of illuminated this point, you can talk all you like about what's in the treaties and what's it. It always comes down to political will. And if the political will is there amongst the other EU leaders to do something for Ireland, then it will be done. In the same way that they were able to do something for Greece, even though that wasn't within the the, the rules by mm. changing the, the, the bail-in clause. So, you know, we're so busy trying to understand why have the Brits done this terrible thing and, you know, talking to them about what we should do, and it's got to be focused on persuading Europe, and in particular building alliances with, and I would say very importantly, the Eastern European countries, where we have a tremendous connection, we have a lot of their citizens here, a lot of their citizens in Britain, we have very similar outlooks in terms of of, kind of politics and economics, more so than with, say, the Scandi countries, and we just need to be making sure that when it comes to the negotiating table, those guys are our friends. They understand their problems. We will do stuff for them as long as they do now, stuff I'm for us. Now, I'm going to be
0: a bit mischievous now. Given that point, would it be better if Ender Kenny stayed on for another while, given his excellent relationships with other European leaders as one of the longest serving PMs in Europe?
3: I, d- I d- well, I mean, because he was saying yesterday he's going to stay on until there's some clarity on the negotiating position. That presumably means twenty thirty nine. I mean, the man will be a hundred by the time <laughs> we have clarity on on Brexit.
0: Long um, live King Ender.
3: I I'm not sure I buy the notion that Ender's personal relationships with these people are that important or or are that deep. You know, and when when he was in Berlin last year. And we you know, the Irish Daily Mail went over there and asked Angela Merkel, are you going to give Ireland special consideration? And she said no. She said they're just one of the 27. So I don't think that actually has any great impact. Kevin.
2: I agree with Sebastian that we have to start um, talking more about what we're going to do now. Uh, I'm less convinced that um, we can be shielded from this by some sort of a special deal. Um, the British seem to be saying that all sorts of things that would make our lives easier are off the table. So they're ruling out being members of the single market. They're ruling out being members of the customs union. Um, they, 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 they they want things that are illegal. So, for example, they want to try to have the car industry inside the customs union, for example, because they like having you know cars made in Britain, but that's illegal, not under European law, but under world trade law. Um, so... I think that we have to prepare for the worst case scenario, which is that there there won't be a special trade deal, certainly not within two years. There there can't be a t- trade deal within two years. And then the issue is what happens to our farmers, what happens to our small businesses who are reliant on the British market. We we need to start thinking about what the government can do to make their lives easier, what the, what the Europeans can do to make their lives easier. And I see sort of three problems. I mean, the first is that uh, a lot of these small companies are... Are, are exporting very heavily towards the British market. The smaller the company, the more likely it is that you're exporting uh, to Britain. The smaller you are, the more heavily these new uh, uh, border costs are going to impinge on you the paperwork and so on is going to uh, be much more serious for you. Secondly the upside for us that people have been talking about is largely in terms of banking jobs but the banking jobs aren't going to help the people down the country they're going to be high paying jobs in Dublin which is already overcrowded and they're probably going to be largely staffed by, by foreigners so we need to think about jobs for ordinary people down the country and the third problem is that a lot of the mom and pop people are insofar as they're exporting they're exporting either $2 or through the British land Bridge to the European continent. And there's going to be tremendous red tape costs associated with uh, driving in and out of Holyhead and Calais, potentially. So we need to be thinking about infrastructure. We need to be thinking about boosting port facilities in, in Rosler or Waterford. We need to be thinking about motorway facilities that can make it easier to get the goods down there. We need to think about state aid, uh, potentially. Uh, are there ways to smooth the transition for these uh, firms? We need to be massively boosting our investment in overseas trade missions throughout the EU. This really is actually a national emergency, but it's an economic emergency, and we all need to come together. Now, not fight about when, you know, I'm all right, Jack, and to hell with you. We need to all come together on this.
3: I mean, this is why, Kevin's absolutely right, and this is why, for example, we've been arguing, you know, and, and I've been arguing personally, we need a Brexit minister, we need a Brexit department, we need people whose entire working lives are focused solely on fixing those problems on behalf of the Irish people and you know everything you said about investment in infrastructure is is what we should be doing and one of the problems is that you ask the question whose department does that come under you know because suddenly you know well that actually that's probably is that in the, is that marine is that transport is that yeah. You know, you've got all these different departments all not really sure whether it's them not really having the resources or the budgets to address that. And the other the other thing is back to Europe. Absolutely. We 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 may not get the special deal, but I mean again, Europe has been prepared to financially assist stricken member states for a variety of different reasons over the last few years. So if Ireland is particularly stricken by this event then why isn't Europe going to be prepared to to offer special financial assistance to Ireland and we should be demanding that as well and I will
0: definitely come back to that but Karen I want to ask you when this first started I thought look Ireland and Britain have all these peace process institutions. You know, there's UK-Irish parliamentary groups and all of this. We are in a fantastic position to act as a go-between, between the, the 26 and the UK. And actually, we could leverage this to our advantage, you yes. know, in some ways. But that was quite put down by Enda Kenny up until his speech yesterday, saying, no, mm-hmm. we we are with the 27 could you see in geopolitical terms perhaps that scenario unfolding whereby we become the backdoor negotiators?
4: I think you need to have um, the right mindset for it. Um, And I'll I'll refer back to what I call the Eurofederalist worldview and ideology in that, you know, just to pick up on one of John Bruton's responses, you know, I, I had mentioned that, the no bailout clause is violated and John Bruton said, well, that's that's perfectly okay. That treaty took seven years to negotiate. The UK negotiated it in good faith and to have the rule broken because it suited them... Needs must. It, no, no, but that leads to the entire collapse of the legal system. Imagine if all of us decided, well, that, that law doesn't suit me, so I'm just going to break it. Like, it, it, it's absolutely mind-bending to say something like that. So I think the problem is, is that... The euro-federalist mindset is what the problem is for Ireland, because I keep saying this. Enda Kenny's job is to negotiate for Ireland, not on behalf of the EU 27. But we have a history in this country of bending over backwards to the EU. And I can bring up points about the bailout, by the way, that we need to go into to explain those better. But unless we're going to realise that we are an island nation of, you know, four and a half million people who need a leader that will negotiate for us hard negotiations in terms of our interests we are going to be lost in these Brexit negotiations um, You've been sending in
0: lots of texts on this uh, Pat in Dublin says In terms of verification issues with the UK we have pre-clearance of passengers to the US so similar arrangements can apply to goods from the UK coming into the EU Every problem will have a practical solution Peter says The full name of the English Conservative Party is the Conservative and Unionist Party The EU bigwigs don't care about Little Ireland Thanks Peter And Mark and Limerick said And I think this is very much um, uh, getting to the problem this is like any divorce one party wants the house and income and the other feels betrayed the EU can't even agree that it will need to slash its budgets because its income tax is reduced remember when this happened to Ireland they proposed slash and burn and a couple of other points Brexit is posing many problems for Ireland but nobody's asking the question if the UK remains in Europe what does that mean in other words where is the EU leading all of us if the EU is evolving towards a federal state then any country that doesn't want want that has no choice but to leave the EU. That's a fairly good point and I have a few more to read out. Now Kevin you wanted to come back in on some points Karen was making there before the break.
2: Well I just want to say first of all that I think that this this phrase Eurofederalist is a real straw man actually. I think there are very few Eurofederalists in Irish politics, people who actually want a federal uh, Europe. We all for example think that we should maintain control over our own tax rates for example. I don't see anybody saying that we want a federal government but uh, That's one thing. Uh, The other thing is, do do you want to keep the single market? And, of course, most of us do want to keep the single market. And the reason is that if it weren't for the single market, we would still be a very poor, very peripheral part of Europe. Um, economists disagree about a lot of things. Uh, we disagree about the single currency. I was never a fan. Other people think it's okay, but none of us disagree that Irish prosperity has been based on FDI selling into the single European market. Even after Lamas and Whitaker opened up the economy in the late fifties, we were still a massive underperformer uh, relative to the rest of Europe. We were still falling further behind France, for example, in terms of income per capita, all the way until nineteen seventy three. And then guess what? We stopped falling further behind. And after the single market programme started in the early 90s, then we started shooting ahead. Mm. As we know, our entire prosperity is based on Europe and the single market, not just FDI, but agriculture as well. Can you imagine uh, what agriculture would look like if we were part of a UK uh, customs union with a, a free trading uh, policy. So I think it's very important here that we distinguish between different things. We can all disagree about the single currency. We can all disagree about the crisis response. I've talked many times about and I've written about the democratic deficit in the European Union. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. If we were to uh, storm off in a huff, lose the head, and leave the EU, as some people apparently want to do, then we would go back to what we traditionally were, a very small, underdeveloped uh, country on the periphery of Europe, sending its young people abroad, not just during crises, so but as a natural matter. So
0: you've no truck with the argument that if, um, if, if if it's a hard Brexit, we would be better off leaving too in order to maintain better trading relations with the UK.
2: Well, in order to, for example, avoid a border with the UK, it wouldn't be enough to leave the EU because, of course, we had a border with the UK from 1923. The moment we left the UK Customs Union, we had to have a customs border. You only avoid customs borders if you're both part of the same customs union. So we'd actually have to leave the EU and join the UK Customs Union, becoming less independent of the UK than we have been at any time since independence, which would be a very odd way to behave, given that we just celebrated the centenary of the events that led to our uh, independence and of course we would be the junior party, party in an Irish UK customs union uh, the Tories as we see don't give a damn about Scottish interests they don't give a damn about Irish interests they only care about their own interests as they see it, they want to go out and strike deals with the white Commonwealth countries with the Aussies, the New Zealanders and so on and we know that those countries have only one interest which is to sell food cheaply to the UK market so we can go back and become a junior Party uh, partner in a British-Irish relationship, or we can continue to sell to Europe, which has been the foundation of our prosperity.
0: Um, Sebastian Hamilton, I had quoted Nick Conti earlier and also writing on that issue of the cult of Brexit. He said, um, the only force in Westminster politics is a resurgent nationalist right that is breathtaking in its recklessness. If taking Britain out of the European Union means driving Scotland from the British Union, then the right harumps believe that they could live with it and indeed welcome it. Who wants those grasping jocks, eh? Um, what's your prediction on where Scotland is, will lie in all of this Nicola Sturgeon was talking about a second referendum was she you know shooting off or do you think it's it's a prospect No I
3: mean it's you know I, I've known Nicola since, since she was first running uh, for the the Holyrood Parliament in 99 uh, so she's always been an incredibly astute smart politician a classy performer and you know, and, and and actually even even during the, the the last UK general election was the most popular politician in England, even though she wasn't standing there. Right. So she's very sharp. Um she recognises that this is a moment where the people of Scotland who voted to stay in are at odds with the people of England. Um and it would only be natural for any nationalist party in any country to see a tension of that kind and a difference of opinion, and say, "Well, this proves why we need to go our own separate way." So, you know, I think I think there probably will be a Scottish referendum. I think it'd be very difficult uh, for Westminster not to grant one at all at any point. It's very hard to say which way that goes. I think the reaction amongst the English, I- I- if it went that way, would would absolutely be well in that case. Get lost the the big problem is what 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 the Scottish economy would be able to do with oil prices where they are. The notion of an independent Scotland was always based primarily on high oil prices, and now you don 't have that but you know this is this is the point that that, that brexit is um uh, I was talking to Oliver Callum the other day about a way I could express this. We came up with the word cluster hames as, oh, a, as, yes. a, as a polite way of saying <laughs> what this is and, 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 and the consequences potentially of Brexit. And the reality is it could go in so many different directions. There's so many things that could happen that that that, that could change it that it's... It, you know, it's 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 beyond the scale of Donald Rumsfeld's Unknown Unknowns. Again, I think what we have to do is say, look, we can't control that. We can't change that. What we can do and what the Irish government can do is focus relentlessly on the welfare of the people of Ireland under these various different possibilities. And once again, you know, I do think that requires a level of focus and dedication and putting the Irish people first that we're not really seeing from the government at this
4: stage. Can I just come back on a couple of things that were said because I I am always concerned and I teach the EU, I'm always concerned about this overwhelming sort of Europhile view and the fact that if it weren't for the European Union, Ireland would be a basket case. We have to remember a few facts. Firstly, a third of our trade is with Eurozone states. So we do trade with the EU but we also trade with other states outside the EU like the US quite significantly. Secondly, the market access is important but it's also Reciprocal, because all the other member states have access to our markets, so it's it's a win-win for everyone in that respect. Thirdly, there well, are that's the
0: point of trade deals. Oh. That yeah. it is. Can a I win just win. say also, okay. I would I'd and like to continue
4: second. to to make okay. a point because yeah. you know I've had yeah. two short contributions. Okay. So, right. in terms of Norway and in terms of Iceland, I mean they use the single market, but they are outside the EU. And the reason why they're outside the EU, one of the reasons between the common between the two countries is our fish is their fisheries. So the fact that that you know the notion that the EU is a panacea for Ireland is actually a huge myth because our fisheries are, have been worth over 200 billion euro to date to the EU, of which we only receive a fraction. So, you know, we're talking about perhaps getting um, some kind of a concessionary yeah, fund. Yeah, but Karen, more Why trade... Why have more, our fisheries yeah. back to offset the problems in agriculture? But more trade benefits everybody. Can I ju- but can okay. I just make my points about right. this whole thing about the Europe, Europe saving Ireland? Um, I think that also... If you look at the behaviour of the EU towards Ireland in terms of the bailout, Jean-Claude Trichet, the head of the ECB, went along with Timothy Geithner, then US Treasury Secretary, in failing to burn um, bondholders, in imposing a bailout that well beyond our ability to pay for completely unfair debt and we can't forget about that. And finally, I think it's a bit naive to ignore the Euro federalism that is charging ahead at the EU level and this is what I study. Jean Claude, Jean-Claude Juncker has repeatedly called for a common European army. They're setting up a huge infrastructure in terms of defence policy. There is absolutely a drive towards having a European federalist system and not only that, Wolfgang Schäuble has called for a social welfare policy across the EU. They're looking for a fiscal union, a banking union this is Eurofederalism and we cannot ignore it
0: Kevin I've to wrap up but I'll give you the last word on that Um,
2: Ireland right now is really having its cake and eating it we have complete access to the single market and we have the freedom to set our own tax rates now can you imagine going to Brussels as an independent country and saying, we want to offer you a free trade deal. The deal is that you will get access to the enormous Irish market. You'll be able to sell whatever you want here. And in return for that, we just want to uh, have the right to serve as a platform, an offshore platform, a low-tax offshore platform for US multinationals uh, selling into the European market. I mean, the Euro- British are going to find that it's difficult to strike a deal. Uh, we would find it impossible.
0: And we shall follow it here on Talking Point. That's it for the day. Many thanks to all my guests, Stephen Jordan, McKelvey and Marion Kennedy were on the production team for now from Talking Point. Thank you for listening.